MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. Lock her up crowd thought they were being very clear about this, explicitly clear. They don't know how you got it so wrong. They need to speak to the manager. They have to talk with Q personally. It's lock her up, not lock him up. We're members of the leopards who eat people's faces party. The leopard is not permitted to eat our faces. The fascist orgasm of naked, pusillanimous fear over the rumors of Trump's arrest tomorrow, rumors still 100% radiating only from Trump and actually contradicted by many facts from other quarters, that fascist orgasm of fear is worth it just by its own self. They have all operated so long so illegally with so much impunity that for many Trump cultists, this is a time so unimaginable that most of them expect to wake up and find out it was all a terrifying, appalling, inconceivable dream and that that skid mark is just a trick of the light. And most importantly, there is their principal response, their repeated threat, their dire warning, their primary directive. It is the same response from everybody in the never-right-but-never-in-doubt crowd running the gamut from Elon, I have now given Twitter an automatic poo emoji function, Musk, to Kevin, now that you mention it, I guess, I am obstructing justice by threatening the DA, McCarthy, to MAGA lawyer Joe McBride claiming Trump is comparable today to Martin Luther King in March 1968, which you really should have Googled first because it's a really bad analogy for Trump. It is the same muted or not so muted or explicit violent threat 
that this will bring blood and war and revenge and we'll crash the economy and we'll take over the blue states and we'll surround Trump with a human moat so you can't arrest him and you'll see in Proud Boys and JFK Jr. and military tribunals and Jesus and never-ending retribution and tyranny and whistleblowers and help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're my only hope. And what will actually happen is... Nothing. You heard me. Nothing. Bullies, especially bullies who have been getting away with bullying so long that they have lost touch with the reality that every once in a while the victim stands up and knocks the bully out cold with one punch, have no frame of reference in a world in which Donald Trump is arrested. None. To the small degree they've actually ever thought about it or anything else, Trump to them is inviolable, untouchable, unbeatable. They don't know what to do, and they don't know how to do it. Like most conservatives and thieves, and they are conservative thieves after all, the idea has never crossed their mind that they could get caught. And the few who can think straight today are already realizing the implication, if the ringleader can be arrested, that means something much, much more important. It means they themselves can be arrested. Whatever else the Trump cult has accomplished, whatever else the Trump cult has destroyed, the Trump cult is not a cult of self-sacrifice and collective action. This is a group of nihilists who can't spell nihilism and who are in it for the grift and the power. It is a cult dependent on one tentpole and one tentpole alone. And Trump has always made sure that nobody gets to stand too close to him in case he loses one one millionth of the credit. And if history teaches us anything about one man cults from Julius Caesar to Huey Long to Jim Jones, it is that the moment the strong man proves fallible, there is only one reaction common to all the subservient figures who survive in the cult. They immediately begin the process of denying, insisting, and absolutely proving that they were never in the cult. They were only kidding. They were just monitoring it for violence. They were auditing it. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Many will disagree with me here and say the threat of violence, I mean, other than the possible risk we all run by being trampled by people running away from Trump, the risk of violence is a tangible one, they say, and I disagree, but I respect that argument. But even that argument neglects something larger. The belief that Trump's take our nation back threat is his instigating his cult to violence, if he really is perp-walked Tuesday or any time, neglects the stark reality that for eight years he's already been instigating his cult to violence, and that he will continue instigating his cult to violence even if he isn't arrested. What's the difference? This is the creature who instigated January 6th. Somebody is only now considering the possibility Trump might try to get his minions to act violently on his behalf? That's all they do. Arresting him is going to fire up his base? Not arresting him is going to fire up his base. The other conventional thinking here is also wildly flawed. Depending on the amount of Kool-Aid imbibed... It goes this way. An arrest of Trump will either guarantee him the nomination or guarantee him the nomination and hand him the White House. To the first point, 
he's running for president next year. He already said so. And the Republican nominee is thus going to be Ron DeSantis, a tiny man in high-heeled shoes in a party persecuting drag queens? Really? It's going to be Mike Pence, who yesterday tried to get away with saying on national television that the Stormy Daniels payoff happened before he joined the Trump ticket, and then John Carl reminded him, uh, it happened just two weeks before the election. Pence is going to be the nominee. Nikki Haley. Pompeo. Is anybody actually assuming Trump will not be the nominee? And say he's not. He will run as a third-party candidate. He has to. His ego cannot let him lose. Whether he's arrested Tuesday or not, getting reelected is his only chance of not going to a supermax penitentiary and dying there while incarcerated. I appreciate that eight years of the abuse of our intelligence, our humanity, our sense of history, our common sense, and our ethics has worn us down. It has gotten us all thinking a little bit like the Trump cultists actually think, wondering if they might be right, even a little. But their same logic that says Trump getting arrested guarantees he'll be elected next year demands that there can be one and only one Democratic nominee in 2024, and that man is Hunter Biden. If, as The Guardian reports, it is Trump's own idea to make sure he surrenders in person, in public, to the Manhattan DA, then hell, get the president and his son Hunter and his wife and Vice President Harris and her husband and have them all surrender somewhere for something and and then attach them like a chain gang. They'll all become president. I mean, back to the first point here. Getting arrested means he becomes president? Lock her up. Did that get Hillary Clinton elected and I missed it or what? Oh, and by the way, there is little actual evidence that Trump will be arrested, at least that he'll be arrested tomorrow, because there may be one last witness for the Stormy Daniels grand jury to hear because Trump reportedly wants one of his 11 billion attorneys to impeach the credibility of one of his 11 billion ex-attorneys. Michael Cohen, the bag man in the Daniels payoff, discussed hiring somebody named Robert J. Costello in 2018, and a pardon was brought up, and then it disappeared, and Cohen didn't hire Costello, and Costello sent Cohen a bill, and Cohen didn't pay the bill, and in Trump world, not paying your bill is the worst crime of all. It's worse than murder. Unless it's Trump who didn't pay the bill. And also, oh, by the way, I always end these podcasts by saying, arrest Trump now while we still can. Let me just add something to that today. Arrest Trump today. Arrest Trump tomorrow. Arrest Trump forever. But even in that context, I don't think this story, or even Trump getting arrested in this case tomorrow or otherwise, and then getting arrested in 10 other cases in the weeks to come, I don't think that's the most important story of the moment, not even the most important Trump story of the moment. The Evan Corcoran saga is way more important, but you may not have heard about it because of all the oxygen being long ago sucked out of the room 
by the image of Trump the martyr trying to hammer in that last nail himself. Friday was Judge Beryl Howell's last day as the top judge in the District of Columbia, and boy, did she go out with a bang. The judge's ruling that the Department of Justice had met the threshold to override attorney-client privilege and force Evan Corcoran to testify against Trump in the Mar-a-Lago documents part of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation, that was expected. What was not expected was Judge Howell then handing federal prosecutors Attorney Corcoran's actual notes about his private communications with his client Trump. Here's a recreation of that. Here. To do that, the judge has to have determined that the notes are evidence of a crime. The so-called crime fraud exception applies here, and we all know what the crime has to be, and we all know who the fraud is, because it was Corcoran who wrote the document last June that Christina Bob signed that indicated that Trump had voluntarily turned over all the stolen government classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The claim was a lie, the document was a lie, and the lawyer's notes clearly did something to prove that the lie was Trump's. Keeping classified documents in your house is a crime even for a former president. Knowingly keeping classified documents in your house is espionage. And forcing your attorneys to swear false witness about it is another crime or two or 30. And frankly, that'll all make Trump's perp walk over Stormy Daniels look like a quick dance in the spring rain. And lastly, let me circle back to this threat of Trumpian violence. Something symbolic happened in Manhattan yesterday, and while it's a little off the topic, it was just so spectacular. It provided just such an amazing slogan or motto, perhaps for this entire shameful era in American history, that I have to play this for you. The Proud Boys decided to storm Drag Story Hour in Greenwich Village, as hosted not by the New York County DA Alvin Bragg, but by the New York State DA or Attorney General, Letitia James. And the drag queens beat the crap out of them. There is a clip on Twitter, a video from Freedom News TV, a very good follow. And the guy you will hear speaking in the audio from it is identified by Freedom News TV as a member of the Proud Boys. I think they're right. The guy is claiming to be an EMT, but he's not wearing any identification as a medic. He's just wearing a fatigue cap, and he's being escorted by another man in a hoodie with Proud Boys written on it in big letters. Oh, and this man has blood all over his face because the drag queens beat the crap out of him. the rallying cry for the Trump mob if and when he is arrested Tuesday or whenever. Quote, I came here to help people, not get the shit beat out of me. Words to live by. 
Still ahead of us in this edition of Countdown, what did I tell you about the Tucker Carlson January 6th gaslight video and how he got it? Did I tell you Kevin McCarthy and Congressman Brian Stile had to have tricked the Capitol Police into setting up the viewing station that the cops were told was for Congress? Only it turned out it was for Tucker Carlson. Guess what the attorney for the Capitol Police has just testified to? This is a huge story. Next. The media continues to carve up CNN boss Chris Licht into little Chris Licht bite-sized pieces. The man described last week as CNN's Captain Ahab gets trashed again by the New York Times. Not by me, but I like to think I got this ball started. And Senator Marsha Blackburn speaks. And if she's ever sounded to you like she was a refugee from QVC or maybe local TV from the 80s, guess what? She's a refugee from local TV from the 80s when she used to talk about big rhinestones and sequined patterns and fun, fun things to wear. And fascism is great. Worst person's coming up. That's next. This is Countdown. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024. And we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother or, in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Postscripts to the news, some headlines, some updates, some snarks, some predictions. Dateline Washington, told you so, told you so, told you. Capitol Police were not allowed to vet the January 6th video that Kevin McCarthy improperly gave to Tucker Carlson. And in fact, McCarthy and Congressman Brian Stile of Wisconsin scammed the Capitol Hill cops into setting up viewing stations the cops thought were for members of the House, but were in fact for the use of Carlson's little producer minions. Capitol Police General Counsel Thomas DiBiase has filed a six-page document as part of a criminal case and in In it, he says of the 40 different video clips Carlson used, emphasized used, most of the clips are just a few seconds each, the police got to see one of them in advance. The other 39, quoting DiBiase, were never shown to me nor anyone else from the Capitol Police. And they asked McCarthy and Republicans again and again to let them see the video that was going to Fox first to assuage security, privacy and decency concerns and were refused by the speaker repeatedly. DiBiase confirmed that the request for access to the footage came first from McCarthy aide Tim Monahan and then from McCarthy's rookie henchman, Brian Stile of Wisconsin, the new chair of the House Administration Committee. Quote, at no time was I nor anyone else from the Capitol Police informed that anyone other than personnel from the House Administration Committee would be reviewing the camera footage. The next thing the Capitol Police knew, House Administration Committee staffers were escorting Fox, quote, news, unquote, staffers to those viewing stations set up by the Capitol Hill Police. Obviously, it will not go anywhere under a GOP majority, but somebody needs to file ethics charges against McCarthy and Style. And when the Democrats regain the House, drive these men who have sold their offices to Rupert Murdoch out of office forever. This is SportsCenter. Wait, check that. Not anymore. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. In sports, the latest from the World Baseball Classic, no players were injured significantly yesterday, meaning it's now one consecutive day since the pennant races uh, have been reshaped by a meaningless exhibition series whose backers boast that its key games can sell 36,000 tickets. On Saturday night, reliever Daniel Bard of the U.S. team lost the plate, walked two, hit two, buzzed the Astros two-time MVP Jose Altuve in on his hands, broke Altuve's thumb, and took Altuve out of the Houston lineup until at least June. But it could have happened in an exhibition game because lots of pitchers with wildness streaks try to throw it full speed on March 18th. And lots of batters who crowd the plate don't back off a little until they're confident their timing and reaction speeds are up to regular season full strength. And besides which, even if there were no World Baseball Classic, Jose Altuve could have been hit by lightning in spring training. Never thought of that, did you? Jose Altuve is out 8 to 10 weeks, and the star reliever Edwin Diaz of the Mets 
is insisting he will make it back before this season ends in September, but the odds of that and the odds that he will never fully recover from his kneecap tendon tear are about the same. A couple of baseball executives I know suggest that while media types whose profiles have been amplified by the tournament or who are paid by Major League Baseball to hype the damn thing continue to defend the World Baseball Classic with arguments bordering on the irrational, they... Most players, most fans, and most teams are missing the real point of the last few days of carnage at the WBC. While appearing in the World Baseball Classic, the players are paid by their major league teams. The major league teams only permit this because the teams can get insurance against any injury that will sideline their players. Just between Altuve and Diaz, the insurers will now pay out something like $30 million to the major league clubs. Well, guess what insurers do when they suddenly have to pay somebody $30 million? Yes, they stop selling them insurance. It was suggested to me that before the next WBC scheduled for 2026, look for baseball to come up with some kind of excuse about how it could get an even bigger TV audience if they played the WBC on non-football nights in November, or how the World Baseball Classic could be coordinated with the winter leagues of Latin America so they could play in... I don't know, in Puerto Rico or Venezuela in November, it wouldn't be great if the WBC championship game were in Mexico on Christmas. And then at least the tournament would stop being this March madness. And somebody like Jose Altuve's eight to 10 week injury would at least put him back on the field for the next spring training. This will all leak out quietly and slowly, and nobody will say a thing about injuries, and they'll move the 2026 tournament until late autumn because nobody will insure it in March ever again after this. They might not even insure it in November either, which raises a point about the fans willing to sacrifice other teams' seasons and even the careers of key players for the sake of a supposedly international tournament where all the key games ever are always played only in the United States. If the major league teams couldn't get insurance on their players and Edwin Diaz had to sign a waiver voiding his hundred million dollar contract if he got hurt jumping up and down in a crowd or Jose Altuve had to agree not to be paid much of his 26 million dollar salary this year if he broke his thumb in one of the games how many of these guys would actually play how far are we all willing to take this I'm playing for national pride stuff the answer is obvious If the players had to take the physical and the financial risk, the 2026 WBC national rosters would be made up of coaches, guys who retired in 1998 or earlier, and the top competitors from each major league team's fantasy camps. Thank you, Nancy Faust. And another controversy somehow got worse over the weekend in sports. James Reimer, goaltender of the San Jose Sharks, refused to wear a warm-up uniform Saturday night for 15 minutes, with some of the lettering and numbering changed to a rainbow pattern for San Jose Sharks Pride Night. Nobody asked him to carry a flag. Nobody asked him to make a statement. Nobody asked him for his endorsement. Nobody asked him anything. He's James Reimer. Just wear the shirt, skate around a couple of times, go back in the dressing room, change the shirt. That's it. 
But James Reimer made a statement anyway. Quote, I am choosing not to endorse something that is counter to my personal convictions, which are based on the Bible. And the initial reaction seemed to be, well, at least he said something rather than trying to sneak it through like the Russians who sabotage Pride Night in Minnesota and New York and that guy in Philadelphia who sort of said something. Even though, as anybody who's read the Bible knows, for nine out of ten subjects, you can get almost any answer you want out of the Bible to say nothing of advice that's in the Bible that you wouldn't follow even if you were Billy Graham. But then, James Reimer decided for some reason to take this to another level, to drag his former teammate Nazim Kadri into this, and he therefore lost any standing he might have had. Loved him to death, Reimer told San Jose Media of their time together with the Toronto Maple Leafs. I don't know exactly the extent of his faith, his Muslim faith, but he's a Muslim. I think you could talk to him and ask him if I treated him any different. I love him. Ah, uh, the old, I can't be a homophobe. One of my best friends is a Muslim defense. <laughs> Resuming Reimer as he kept digging, quote, People would understand if I wouldn't be able to wear a Muslim jersey in warm-ups, promoting the Muslim faith, being a Christian, and a follower in Christ. Can you still hear me up there on the surface? Yeah, that's not exactly the flex Reimer thinks it is. End of the day, he continued, I love everyone and the people in this community. If I had a gay teammate, I hope I would be the first one to shake his hand when he comes in and treat him like I would any other teammate, unquote, except Reimer made a public statement to underscore that he was not supporting that hypothetical teammate. By the way, it really isn't hypothetical. Statistically, James Reimer has already had at least one gay teammate. He just doesn't know it because no gay NHL player has ever felt comfortable enough to reveal his sexuality in part because of, quote, friends, unquote, like James freaking Reimer. By the way, there are two punchlines to this story. A hockey writer has pledged to donate $3 to an LGBTQ charity for every goal James Reimer gives up the rest of the season, which could cost a lot of money given that by one metric of the NHL's 98 goalies this year, Reimer is the 89th best. The other punchline? Sometime on Saturday, Reimer signed a puck for a fan at the game in San Jose or at the arena after the game. We're not sure when it happened. It was a puck with a rainbow design on it. It was a Pride Night puck. Evidently, James Reimer never noticed. Something he should consider doing more of. ahead you have heard me say it again and again and again when we worked together at msnbc we all thought cnn president chris licked ate paste well the proverbial glue guy has gotten carved up in the newspapers yet again as he and the network transform fully into a punchline the latest plus the original story of moby licked when he was joe scarborough's hatchet man First time for the Daily Roundup of the Miscreants, Morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze, Kaylee McEnany. I can't play this tape for you, even though I really would like to, because it's from Fox. 
and I'll let you in on a little secret. They would find out and they would sue me because here's another secret. I have from time to time been critical of Fox. Actually, just once, really. Continuously since 2001. Anywho, after her stint lying for money from Trump, McEnany has since moved on to lying for money for Fox, and they're now letting her fill in for the actual hosts. Friday, she was filling in for Laura Ingram in her show The Ingram Angle. Now, it's a dumb name, and it's a tongue twister, but still, it takes a kind of special talent to then say... I'm Kaylee McEnany in for Laura Ingram, and this is a special edition of the Ingram Angum. It's kind of hard to believe someone's life could have peaked when they were the associate producer on the Mike Huckabee show. The Ingram Angum. It is now and forever the Ingram Angum. So saith the Lord. Ingram Angum. Ron's failed New York Republican nominee Lee Zeldin ran for governor. After Trump leaked the rumor that he was about to be arrested, Zeldin tweeted, Alvin Bragg may very well be the most dangerous, divisive, incompetent, and compromised district attorney in America. On day one, my first action as governor would have been to tell Bragg he was being fired. Mr. Zeldin, what you would have done to Bragg if you had not lost a blowout to Kathy freaking Hochul? It's not exactly the flex you think it is. But our winner... And uh, let me just let the music die out here because this is the proverbial audio daily double. You have to hear this and hear this clearly. Stand by. Thank you. Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee speaking at the latest conservative conference, and they have one every weekend. They do nothing else. They have to keep busy to avoid the small chance that the religion they champion might be literally true and they're all going to hell. Anywho. This is from the Palmetto Family Bible Conference at North Charleston, South Carolina. Well, how come it's North Charleston if it's in South Carolina? And this is about that nationwide ride Friday where we destroyed tens of millions of the conservatives' appliances. You missed that when we went to everybody's home and just burned down their washboards and their washing machines and... Marcia thinks it happened. They see an administration trying to take, and an ideology trying to take total control of their lives. Whether it's your light bulbs, your toilet flushers, your shower heads, your gas stoves, or this week your washing machines. That was an applause line that got no applause. If Marsha Blackburn sometimes sounds to you like one of those fashion and style ditzes you still see occasionally on Channel 7 magazine or two on the town TV or any of the locally produced shows left over from the 80s and the 90s. Here's a little known fact. Before becoming first the dumbest person in the House of Representatives and then the dumbest person in the Senate, and more to the point, before she began to look like the crazy, unkempt sister of Flo from the progressive insurance commercials, Marsha Blackburn was a professional image consultant who did TV appearances. No, I'm not kidding. She took out an ad once in a Nashville newspaper, her face with a big headline next to it, image consultants aren't just for the rich. She once offered an hour's lecture, a ticket to it for 15 bucks, lunch included. I found feature articles on image consulting that quote her, from United Press International in 1981, from Gannett Newspapers in 1991. There's a 1987 Nashville, Tennessean article that quotes her as saying, 
I like to build my flair or style with accessories, which I believe was also her last campaign slogan. Most importantly, there is a quick TV clip, Origin Unknown, that they've been trying to get rid of off the internet for years, but it's out there and it's staying out there. Marsha's giant inflatable hair suggests it could be 1991 or it could be 1981. If it weren't on video and it was on film, it could be 1961. Anyway, this is the same Marsha Blackburn, now United States Senator. Can you dress us up for the holiday? Oh, we can dress you up better than ever this year. You wouldn't believe it. Christmas and holiday wear is so exciting. And for the first time in many of our lives, many young adults, people who are in the 40 and under bracket, it's the first year we've ever gotten the chance to really make a distinctive difference in our daytime and evening dressing. Well, how is that changing, Marcia? Oh, we're seeing so much glitter and glamour and lots of glitz, big rhinestones, big fake gems. Lots of sequined fabrics and just fun, fun things to wear. Big fake gems. Anywho, I was watching these two clips that I just played you the audio from, and I was thinking, I bet you Marsha Blackburn's only had just the one thought over the last 40 or 50 years, and she keeps parceling it out. Portions of it here, portions of it there, in fashion consulting, or in the House, or in the Senate or at her little weekly theocratic conventions. And I wondered, what would it sound like if I put it all back together again? If I made that one thought back into one soundbite? I call these things, and I know nobody else has ever used this term, a mashup. Well, how is that changing, Marsha? They see an administration trying to take big rhinestones, big fake gems, lots of sequined fabrics, and light bulbs, your toilet flushers, your shower heads, your gas stoves, or this week your big fake people. Can you dress us up for the holiday? Oh, we can dress you up better than ever this year. You wouldn't believe it. As my dad would say, that's somebody that's got too much time and too much big rhinestones big fake gems lots of sequined fabrics and just fun fun things to wear marcia now don't get your glitter and glamour and glitz stuck in your toilet flushers blackburn today's oh no wait i I can't resist. I'm sorry. Well, how is that changing, Marsha? They see an administration trying to take big rhinestones, big fake gems, lots of sequined fabrics and light bulbs, your toilet flushers, your shower heads, your gas stoves, or this week your big fake people. Can you dress us up for the holiday? Oh, we can dress you up better than ever this year. You wouldn't believe it. As my dad would say, that's somebody. Marsha Blackburn, today's worst dressed person in the world! Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you. Here on Next Question, it's going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. 
I have some big news to share with you on our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of Challenge Champion. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, well, they've sliced up Chris Licht of CNN again. New York Times noting that the Licht-helmed CNN primetime specials at 9 p.m. Quote, last week when the network aired the Biden and Zelensky interviews, as well as a town hall with Governor Youngkin of Virginia, CNN delivered its fourth lowest 9 p.m. weekly ratings in 24 years. Times quotes Licht's boss, David Zaslav, as saying, ratings be damned and let's get a lot wrong in the next year. The whole piece reeks of a subtext of when are they going to fire this Licht guy and this Zaslav guy? Anyway, the original story about when I worked with Chris Licht at MSNBC next. First, in each edition of Countdown, we feature a dog in need you can help. Every dog has its day to Brooklyn and Nacho, a tiny, terrified dog, maybe a Yorkie Chihuahua mix. For two years, he got no attention, no affection, no exercise, not enough food. Then his human left the country and gave him to an elderly aunt. And of course, by then, Nacho was too scared of humans to respond. AMA Animal Rescue is trying to help him recover, needs our donations. Look for Nacho on GoFundMe or on my Twitter feeds. I thank you, and Nacho thanks you.
Perhaps the most amazing thing about my 10 years at MSNBC was the fact that Joe Scarborough and his producers, especially his chief henchman, ever got their own show on the air because nobody I have ever worked with in radio or television, in sports or news, in the 20th century or the 21st ever spent more time trying to screw with other programs on the same network than did Joe Scarborough. And until just about the time I left in 2011, the guy he sent in to do most of the sabotage for him was this henchman guy. The reason this should matter to you now is Scarborough's henchman was Chris Licht, the new president of CNN. And if they scoured the nation to find the worst person to run CNN in a time when democracy is threatened by one political party and tepidly defended by another, it's Chris Licht. I know, I know. You turn on the TV and you see Joe Scarborough and you see exactly what I see. A blank, dazed, darting, paranoid, no soul, stupid, check engine light look. But if you don't trust me, trust my scars, my Joey scars. Behind that vapid face is a master saboteur. Early in 2008, the late Tim Russert called me and warned me that the GOP had upped its pressure on me. He said he had heard from somebody in New York that somebody in New York was going into the office of the president of NBC News saying that Joe Scarborough couldn't get his friend John McCain to come on to his new morning show because I was so critical of McCain on Countdown. Tim was not sure it was Scarborough, but if it wasn't, who else could have gotten in to see the president of NBC News other than Scarborough or his executive producer? The evidence for the new CNN president, Mr. Licht, being directly involved in interfering with programming to benefit somebody else's friends or political cronies was vague in 2008, but not at all vague two years later. Early in January 2010, the Republican candidate to fill the Senate seat of the late Ted Kennedy, Scott Brown, the former semi-nude model, was at a rally when one of his supporters talked about, quote, shoving a curling iron up the backside of the Democratic Senate candidate, Martha Coakley. Scott Brown clearly heard the remark from the crowd and responded, quote, we could do that. On January 18th on Countdown, I did a brief commentary about how unsuitable Brown was for public office. I said he was, quote, an irresponsible, homophobic, racist, reactionary, ex-nude model, teabagging supporter of violence against women and against politicians with whom he disagrees, unquote. I had quotes from Brown. I had videotape of him disparaging his minority opponent in a local election to her face at a debate to back up what I said. An hour later, Joe Scarborough commenced a tweet storm against me. Quote, Olbermann calls Brown a homophobic, racist reactionary who supports violence against women. How reckless and how sad. It's no longer enough to simply disagree with someone. I'm sorry, I just fell into my Scarborough impression. Just as when Beck called a president racist, this sort of rhetorical extremism must be discouraged. It cheapens the debate. End quote and impression. Now, there was a standing rule at MSNBC. You want to criticize another MSNBC personality? Go ahead. Have a blast. But it must be on the air on MSNBC, and the other person must have an opportunity to reply in real time in the same show or in some kind of face-to-face -face way. No hit and run 
no Joe Scarborough tweet storms. If you criticize them by name or by inference in any other medium, newspaper, interview, radio, social media, you were to receive an automatic suspension. The next day, January 19th, I called the president of MSNBC, Phil Griffin, and I asked how long Joe Scarborough's automatic suspension was going to be. Griffin asked me to come into the office a little earlier than usual and to go see him. He said he had already had a meeting about the tweets that morning with Scarborough's executive producer, Chris Licht. Griffin explained that Scarborough, according to Licht, considered Scott Brown a friend. More importantly, Chris Licht warned Griffin that if Griffin followed through and enforced the suspension rule, Scarborough would have no other option than to go to the press and tell reporters, especially reporters at right-wing websites like Tucker Carlson's The Daily Caller, that he, Scarborough, had been suspended because he, Scarborough, was a conservative, but I was a liberal, and that I, and not Phil Griffin, ran MSNBC. What can I do? Griffin was scared. I told him he could fire Scarborough and Licht because they had just tried to blackmail him, and eventually he was going to have to fire them both anyway, but that I knew he would not do this, and that I knew now that he would not suspend Scarborough either. And Griffin did not suspend him. Partial score, Scarborough's friends, two, MSNBC's rules of behavior, nothing. But Phil Griffin did send out a memo to the entire company insisting that anybody who criticized another MSNBC show or host in another medium would be suspended, except Scarborough, who had just done exactly that and then threatened his own employers. On January 25th, Brian Stelter's old blog, TV Newser, got a copy of Griffin's memo. They wondered why Scarborough had not been suspended, so they called the MSNBC president, and then they printed, quote, Griffin responds to TV Newser, quote, an important rule was broken. I spoke to Keith, and he said in the spirit of teamwork and the free flow of ideas, he didn't think it warranted punishment or suspension. I also talked to Joe, and he apologized to me that's why I made the decision that this didn't rise to the level of punishment, but I felt it was necessary to reiterate my long-standing policy. 100% bullcrap. Reiterate my long-standing policy, which I just did not enforce against Joe Scarborough. The whole thing was totally fabricated. Licht and Scarborough had threatened to smear their own bosses in the right-wing echo chamber. They should have been both fired on the spot. In May 2010... Scarborough said something on the air about a Democrat getting away with not being investigated for something. I forget the details. I didn't bother to look it up. You can if you want. Then, Marcos Melitzis, the editor of the Daily Coast website, and not just a regular contributor to Countdown, but somebody who had been promoting the show and the MSNBC brand on that website every day for five years, Marcos sent a snarky but legitimate tweet questioning Scarborough's credentials to criticize others who had not been investigated for stuff. Marcos invoked the staffer who died in an accident in Joe Scarborough's congressional office. Scarborough then attacked Melitzis on Twitter, inaccurately claiming Melitzis had accused Scarborough of murder. A few days after that, I got a phone call from the MSNBC president, Phil Griffin. And if he got a phone call rather than a call to come into his office, you know he was really scared. Griffin told me, Chris Licht has been in to see me. Joe won't put up with having Marcos Melitzis on his network anymore. Not only that, but Licht says many of Joe's friends 
who also appear in Dayside and Primetime, won't come on if Marcos Molitsis is permitted to continue here. Chris is insisting that Marcos be banned from MSNBC immediately. Chris says he's afraid that if we don't do that, Joe won't come into work tomorrow. Upon hearing that, I laughed, and I congratulated Phil Griffin on the clear win-win he'd just been given. But Phil was very bad at enforcing MSNBC's rules, but very good at creating new ones on the spot to protect Joe Scarborough and Chris Licht and their friends. I'm banning Melitzis from any further appearances on MSNBC. I said, Phil, he's a contributor to my show. You are suspending my contributor, who has driven hundreds of thousands of viewers to Countdown and MSNBC, and I don't have any say in it. You are owned by Joe Scarborough and Chris Licht. What you now have to worry about is whether I tell this story on the air tonight or I just wait and tell it later. Phil now got conciliatory because he was scared again and said it could be just a suspension if I cooperated. So I called Marcos. He said he enjoyed his contributions to Countdown. He also did occasional appearances on the old Ed Schultz MSNBC show. And he said if there were a chance at resuming them, he'd prefer to at least try that. So Marcos and I went along with Griffin suspending Marcos Melitzis, and to my knowledge, Marcos Melitzis has not been seen on MSNBC since. I wish I had better notes on some of my conversations from the 2008, 9, 10, 11 era about those conversations with the hosts and the producers of the other shows like Schultz and Rachel Maddow's show and even Chris Matthews and Hardball, I must have heard a variation of this statement a dozen times from these people. Guess who was in Griffin's office explaining that such and such is Joe's friend and Phil really needs to make sure we lay off him? Chris Licht. It was usually an expletive in the middle between Chris and Licht. I remember one of my producers at the MSNBC version of Countdown telling me that one of the other producers told him that Licht had gone to NBC News President Steve Kappas with an actual list of Republicans that Maddow and Olbermann needed to stop criticizing because they were Joe's, here's the word again, friends. And we were hurting Morning Joe. What's amazing is that setting aside the issues of unrevealed torrid love affairs, when CNN fired its 9 p.m. host Chris Cuomo, President Jeff Zucker, and Senior Vice President Allison Gallist, they fired them in essence because they interfered with CNN content and practices in order to do favors for people who were their friends, or in Cuomo's case, their relatives. At MSNBC, Interfering with MSNBC content and practices to do favors for friends was seemingly the only reason Chris Licht had a job. So, CNN got rid of left-wingers for a terrible violation of journalistic ethics and then hired as president a right-wing henchman who had committed exactly the same journalistic ethical problems and who, for his act, the first one of his career at CNN killed off the only national television show that regularly held up Fox News, Newsmax, and all the rest to the world to show that they were the threats to democracy that they are. This is CNN. I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. 
Here are the credits. Most of the music was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel, who are the Countdown musical directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray, produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by the group No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments from Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Jonathan Banks, and everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's countdown for this, the 804th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. So now watch for the new meaning behind this next phrase. Arrest him now while we still can. Like tomorrow. Tomorrow would be a good day. Is it too late today? Arrest him today. Better yet, arrest him today and then arrest him again tomorrow. The next scheduled countdown is tomorrow. Thank you for bearing with me. Till then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., we dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.